I want to thank you all for joining another episode of the Bakari Sellers Podcast. I can't believe, but it's our 17th episode. I want to thank everybody at The Ringer. I want to thank Kaya. I want to thank Ronick. I want to thank Bill Simmons um, for giving me this opportunity. Uh, Juliet, everybody at The Ringer. This has been an awesome experience, and we're already on episode number 17. I also want to thank all of you, everybody who subscribed, everyone who has tweeted about us, shared us with your friends, and left the review. A positive review, not some of you guys who are spamming me with bad reviews, but I love all of you all's positive reviews. Um, We're able to do what we do because of you. So keep sharing our links, tweeting about us and Instagramming us what guests you want to see and the conversations you want to have. It's convention week, y'all. And as expected, our forever first lady kicked us off right. So let me be as honest and clear as I possibly can. Donald Trump is the wrong president for our country. He has had more than enough time to prove that he can do the job, but he is clearly in over his head. He cannot meet this moment. He simply cannot be who we need him to be for us. It is what it is. She was the headliner for day one of the convention, but one of the headlines from the convention that has pissed off some of my progressive friends is the feeling that the convention has been geared more towards moderates and Republicans, where prominent Republicans like Colin Powell and John Kasich get primetime speeches, whereas prominent progressives, namely Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, only get 60 seconds. So I get it. We all know we need progressives to win in November, and progressives could look at the convention lineup and see the AOC invitation as a slight. I actually share concerns that parts of our platform didn't go far enough, including amendments like legalizing marijuana that I supported with progressives that were voted down. And it's not unreasonable to look at the convention keynote invitees, the prominent Republicans that have publicly voiced their support for Vice President Biden, and the vice president's own words and track record and be concerned that he'll approach the presidency and govern in a way that curries favor with Republicans and moderates and not progressives who believe they have a rightful claim on the future. You see, I get it. So my advice to my progressive friends in the words of the great American athlete quarterback from the Green Bay Packers, Aaron Rodgers, R-E-L-A-X, relax. Here's why. First, the Biden platform, not the DNC's, which is largely symbolic, is the most progressive platform we've ever seen from a Democratic nominee, period. Is it perfect? Of course not. I want to see marijuana legalized, a robust public option established, student loan debt responsibly canceled, the path to reparations begun, the federal judiciary dramatically expanded, and broadband for everyone. And it's on us to push to make that happen. As my father reminded us during his episode on the podcast, President Johnson didn't give the civil rights movement anything. They forced his hand. Second, convention invites and platforms are fine, but they're also largely symbolic. And more importantly, neither of them will move votes and neither of them will flip the Senate for us, which holds the key for how progressive a Biden-Harris administration can actually be. Expanding the judiciary, creating a robust public option as possible, a 100 percent clean energy future and green jobs package, meaningful police reform, all in my view, require a couple of things. We have to eliminate the filibuster, flip the Senate and flip it decisively. So my advice here is to channel our energy into organizing in key Senate races in places like Mississippi, 
South Carolina, Maine, Colorado, Montana, Arizona, Louisiana, Georgia, and North Carolina. Write a check, join a virtual phone bank, call family and friends in those states. The more Senate seats we flip, the more latitude we give a Biden-Harris administration for governing in a progressive direction because we reduce the need for votes from Senate Republicans. So to my progressive friends on the things that matter, the president's agenda, his VP pick, the direction of the party and the country you've already won. For the things that matter less, like convention invitations and DNC platforms, relax. Save your energy for the fight ahead and flipping the Senate and getting the new administration to govern in a direction where I think we all wanted to go on the issues that matter most. Now, on to our episode with my friend Elliot Williams, a former DOJ and ICE staffer who an appointee who has a great expertise on the president ripping apart our foundation and the tenets of our democracy from its root. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash! Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah! A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, you're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA. I make calls. I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it. You can work out in it. You can go outside. You can go shopping down in your local wherever. And you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I.com slash Simmons. You know, Elliot, I've been looking forward to this episode of the Bakari Sellers podcast. Thank you so much for joining me today. How are you doing, man? I'm wonderful. How are you? I mean, you know, crazy times, crazy times. The world is burning, but, you know, <laughs> that's the understatement. The world is is burning. And we had this uh, Democratic National Convention going on. What are you looking forward to? What are you looking out for? Tell me how you feel things are going. Yeah. Um, you know, give me, give me your, give me your, cause it's a zoom convention. I mean, it's, it's, this is as sober as I've been during a democratic national <laughs> convention. This is an interesting time. Yeah. So I think second night was better than first night. First night, uh, sort of felt a little slow and a little, I don't know, just, uh, maybe, maybe part of that might've been getting used to seeing the zoom convention. Second night was really powerful. Jill Biden was very powerful. John McCain, and the video was very powerful. And the integration of the video elements and the live speeches were, you know, were, were, uh, was phenomenal. That roll call. The roll call. Was yeah. It, there I mean, you go. What up? Like, yeah. I, you know, literally we've been watching roll calls for our entire lives. You've, you know, you've been to a bunch in person, right? Been and, in the roll calls. Yeah. Yeah. And it's just the norm is broken now. There's no way they can go back to doing that in a big convention call ever again yeah. after just seeing the beauty of America and its diversity. So, yeah, I mean, it's growing on me. And I think, you know, change is hard, but this might be like in every other area of life, we're getting used to 
a world where you and I are doing a podcast where we aren't in the same room, right? Yeah. yeah. And we're just getting used to new norms. And uh, there were some beautiful ones that I think are shattered, namely that candidates have to only be white people. Uh, well, that we we are, we have shattered that, and they white men to be exact. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. one of the cool parts about about what we're seeing is that you have to actually have talent to break through. Like everybody can't break through in a Zoom type of convention. And watching Jill Biden break through, watching Michelle Obama, two unelected women, by the way. Yes, uh, you know Barack Obama, Kamala Harris, and Hillary Clinton will break through as well as we're hopeful Joe Biden will as well. Um, and so it takes a good deal of talent. But before we get too deep, I'm excited about this episode because I want to kind of dig in deep on some of the issues of the day. And before we get to anything else, I want you to talk to me about the arc of your career. Oh. Walk me through your, yeah, walk me through your first job out, out of law school to the work you do now with your podcast and on television and with the Raven Group. Oh, I appreciate that. That's re- okay. So first job out of law school, I clerked for a couple of years, as many people do. I worked at the Justice Department as a young career prosecutor. I talk about that on air a lot, but that uh, I was a career prosecutor, worked on the Hill for the Senate Judiciary Committee for Senator Schumer after that. And then literally day one of the Obama administration, I was in the mix for two jobs there. One, I ran legislative affairs at ICE, which, you know, it's a complicated place. Uh, and, and, I, and I've got... I've got oh, progressive, every progressive just turned it off real quick. Oh, my God. Bukhari Sowers podcast. Forget this, man. <laughs> no. Uh, abolish ice. Um, and then the, back to the Justice Department at the end. And then uh, private sector now with the Raven Group, a consulting firm. But, I, you know, mo- a lot of... As you know, a lot of time on TV, uh, on the radio as well, uh, Sirius XM as a commentator, too. So, you know, a mix of stuff. Where, who did you clerk for? Chuck Wilson on the 11th Circuit, another black judge. Okay. Yeah. And then okay. um, Donald Middlebrooks on the Southern District of Florida. I probably shouldn't ask this, but do you have aspirations to be a federal district court judge or in the Court of Appeals? Is that, a- is that anything that you want to do? Absolutely not. Under no <laughs> circumstances ever would the federal bench ever be appealing to me. I just want to get a book out like Bakari Sellers and, hey. and be, be badass enough to have my name be the title of the podcast. That's when you know you've arrived. It's that. Well, that's also when uh, you and Bill Simmons have a lack of creativity together. We bounced okay. about three names off and we said, oh man, the Bakari Sellers podcast sounds like it. But I am waiting on your book because it's going to be fascinating. I want to talk about, at the beginning of this, I specifically want to talk about your podcast, Made yeah. to Fail. Uh-huh. Why, why'd you do Made to Fail? Because it's so interesting and, I, and we'll dig into some of the topics. You know, it's interesting when, as we're in the, you know, you and I started uh, chit-chatting about this tough period we're in now. And what we're seeing is that a lot of the systems that are there to support people now are buckling under the strain of coronavirus. So the big one and my favorite episode, it's the third episode we do. I'm not, you know, it's like picking a favorite kid. Like uh, I love all my kids, but I really love the third episode. It's Florida and unemployment. No, I, I have a, I have a favorite child. But go ahead. <laughs> so do I, but I ain't going to talk about it. But like, <laughs> but Florida and unemployment insurance where this system was set up to fail people. It was set up to be Byzantine and complicated with a website that didn't work because Ron DeSantis and Rick Scott, former governors, didn't want people collecting unemployment insurance. And now that millions and millions of people, something like 3 million people are applying for benefits, they can't get the help they need when they need it more than ever. So I'm fascinated by the angle here because you you chronicle how conservative politics yeah. undermines institutions like our voting systems, our unemployment insurance, et cetera, things we depend on. 
Why have conservative politicians been so good at fucking things up, but so but so successful in still winning elections where the people they fuck still vote for them? It's like, well, it's what's the matter with Kansas, right? It's this whole exactly people, people voting against their interests. Now, we've been talking, we the world have been talking about Donald Trump getting people to vote against their interests uh, for a long time. Mary Trump, his niece, if you read her book, talks about the fact that the president probably would have contempt for the people who vote for him if he were to meet them in a bar. If, frankly, if this guy, this New York City fat cat in a suit and a Brioni tie were to walk into these places with these people who are cheering and screaming for him, because he's tapping into anger, he's tapping into resentment, and sometimes it's not, people aren't voting on policy, they're voting on feelings and passion and anger. And I think that's, yeah. I read Mary Trump's book. It could have been a, a, a chapter. Yeah, I mean, it was it was it was a lot, and it was a lot yeah. of fluff around the edges. It, yeah. it probably could have been two chapters, but it did it did kind of distill the fact that we're dealing with something unlike what we've dealt with before. The layer of narcissism and psychopathy um, that we're seeing in this leader today. My father um, mm-hmm. is seventy five years old, and he would always tell me that the difference between Donald Trump and Richard Nixon is that you can you can shame uh, Richard Nixon. Yeah, no uh, Donald Trump. Donald Trump has no shame. Let me ask the the question I just asked, but let me ask it in the inverse. Why are Democrats and liberals and progressives not better at getting voters to see that we're a better choice to unfuck your lives <laughs> and the institutions you depend on? And why don't we win more? You know, because I think we as progressives think that systems will save us. We think that the government exists to save us, that playing dirty will not save us because, well, why would we do that when the government is inherently good and uh, it will ultimately rally to our aid? It can't be blown up or broken. And what Donald Trump has proven is that, well, no, he's, he's almost the best example of that whole ideology or orthodoxy, right? Which is that you just blow the whole thing up and the whole thing is a broken system and, and we just don't need government, we just don't want it and so on. And I just think it's just a harder sell when when your reliance is on the system, as I think is the case for, for progressives, liberals, Democrats, whatever. You got anything upcoming on Made to Fail that we need to be looking out for in terms of some of these systems that uh, would pique interest to some of my, my listeners and in, in, in understanding how they're being dissembled right in front of our eyes? Wisconsin and voting, which the very decision to not postpone Wisconsin's primary election this past April was itself designed to get people not to vote. Now, you know from South Car- black man from South Carolina, given who you are and your family is and everything, the history of voter suppression in this country, particularly in the Deep mm-hmm. South, but it's not limited to the Deep South. It's, and Correct. we use Wisconsin as an example where efforts were made to limit the number of people who could vote and merely not moving an election as a pandemic was just starting to break out and we were just trying to understand it was itself a way of blowing up the system. And I, uh, I hearken back to Scott Walker and Brian Kemp being the new age Lester Maddox of our time, George oh, wow. Wallace of our time, because they, they, have, uh, they have taken their voter suppression and they are, their efforts to suppress the vote to levels that haven't been seen since that, that time period. One of the things that you mentioned at the beginning was that you're a DOJ veteran and a former Senate Judiciary staffer. So you understand the DOJ. I don't understand anything anymore because nothing's the same. Well, nothing. Everything's been broken, man. But yeah, in the abstract. Well, explain, explain the explain the damage. I mean, if you had to, if you're sitting at the bar beside somebody and we're going through these systems of government, my the one yeah. I want to talk about, you know, first because I mean, I think that he's destroyed it, but he's actually destroyed the judiciary, which we'll get to. Oh yeah, in a way that that is within the bounds of his power. 
we're talking about you know the DOJ and and uh, William Barr. Explain the damage that William Barr has done to the DOJ, and what's the rebuilding work of the next Attorney General? That's interesting. So you know, part of me feel you know doesn't want to go in on Barr, even though Barr is the problem. But Barr to me is the symptom, and the problem is Donald Trump. What we have is a president who believes that his law enforcement apparatus exists to protect him and prop him up. You know, in every instance of this, going back to the beginning of the administration, from asking Jim Comey to be loyal to him, to firing Jeff Sessions, to firing the Department of Homeland Security Secretary, to firing John Kelly, the White House Chief of Staff, to firing another Homeland Security Secretary, and on down, and putting Matthew Whitaker, a loyalist, into the Attorney General. So all of these, you know, it's look, if it had happened with shame, fool me once, shame on you, fool me 14 times, you got a problem in a guy who's, who's broken the rule of law in the country. So I think the biggest problem is Donald Trump. The president merely in William Barr has found an attorney general who is willing to serve his aims because the ball keeps bouncing in the president's favor. But, you know, this rhetoric about um, and, you know, you saw it in, with regard to the protests, too, and being able and willing to weaponize, to use mm-hmm. a metaphorical and literal term, to weaponize law enforcement to his aims. That's the problem. And I think what far more than William Barr, and yeah, we could use a new attorney general, but far more than William Barr, the country needs a new president to get us back to some sense of order with respect to the fact that law enforcement ought to be independent. And he's good at the civil rights division. I mean, he's he's just gone through and just carved out things that are essential to protecting the vulnerable and protecting the interest of black and brown people and totally. uh, vulnerable people populations throughout the country. If yeah. Joe Biden called you and asked you to give him five names of who she, he should consider to be the next attorney general, who would you tell him? <laughs> well, I'm, I, I can tell you my five. <laughs> okay. Well, you know, you see, the problem is I want to hear your five. The problem is that I'm too close to it. So I feel like I have all these names of random ass U.S. attorneys and stuff that I yeah, you, I mean, <laughs> you know, so it's sort of, you know, it's sort of like random assistant district attorney in my <laughs> county or whatever. But no, look, it's going to be hard to make a case for the next attorney general not being a person of color and you know, perhaps even a woman of color. But the names in these various, so one, Sally Yates, obviously not of color, but a woman and a pro and someone I worked with very closely. Uh, we She's on my of, list. She's on your list. Willie, uh, Willie Wifredo Ferrer, who was the, um, the U.S. attorney in Miami. Um, I believe he's Cuban-American and was somebody I worked with closely and, and I'm really, really fond of. A number of members of Congress, like you could, or, or oh, and number one, another one, Benita Gupta, the head of the Leadership Conference. On she's on, she's, she's, okay. she's right, on my t- list. Right, she's, right, so t- yeah, she's on my list. Yeah, no, no, Benita would be great. Um, a couple members of Congress. So, I mean, Hakeem Jeffries has never been... Hakeem uh, Jeffries is going to be the next Speaker of the House. Yeah, that's what I mean. That's what I'm saying. Like, he's never, number one, he's never been a prosecutor. Number two, he's got such a bright future in Congress. Um, I'm trying to think of who else. Oh, um, Javier Becerra. I was going to say, that's number three, three on my list. Oh my God, we have three out of yes. five. Javier Becerra's yes. good. The problem is that I just don't know if it's too much California. Um, and then the last one, I would say... What does that mean? Oh my God, the <laughs> West Coast... The West Coast disregard is too much. It is. It's too much. It's too much guacamole. They, all they want to do is eat guacamole and then walk around and, and, and hang out and hang out. Yeah, and hang out in the sun. Like, no, okay, you can't come to bring all that to DC. And and another alum that I worked with a lot, Tony West. But the, again, the challenge that he's the brother-in-law. Yeah, he won't. Yeah, that would. Yeah, but Tony. Tony, I work with a lot too, and Tony, he's a pro and a. And I love Tony. I, I love Tony to death. I, how about this? How about uh, how about the Attorney General from the great state of New York? Okay, oh, Tish James would be real good. Be real. Tish is that, James, is that your number four. Okay, that's my um, that's my number four. My number five is somewhat indecently presumptuous, but I also like read polls. You uh, number five you? is I Bakari no, Sel- no, 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 definitely not. 
Uh, number five, I think, is actually the person I would enjoy it the most, uh, Doug Jones. Yes. Uh, yeah. I, and I was thinking, when it's funny, I was thinking, I saw an article about, you know, if he doesn't win his race, uh, you know, he's on the short list for any number of cabinet positions. He'd be good. He'd be really good. Um, and he was, a, he was a damn good U.S. attorney. I mean, yeah. we, we know oh. that. Yeah. Um, so I, I just, you know, I, I'm weird enough to sit up at night and think about this stuff and, and kind of rank, rank everyone. I just think Doug Jones would be phenomenal. Doug Jones would sail through, if it's not a Democratic uh, Senate, he'll sail through uh, the vetting process, he'll sell through confirmation. So it's a it's an easy play. What this is something that you probably feel more comfortable answering because you are you do know the nuts and bolts. What are the top priorities for the next DOJ policy wise? I think number one, we're just returning some sense of normalcy and order. That is so big and so critical. I think this idea, and this gets back to my point about the president sort of having broken the attorney general or broken uh, uh, law enforcement in the country a little bit. So maybe that should be your book. Yeah. The, the president who broke America. The president or, who broke America. It's the pottery barn president. He broke it. And that was oh, it, right? <laughs> um, but no, I, th- I think, res- I think restoring morale and order is the thing that this attorney general needs to focus on. I think that's one. I think we still have lingering questions about what policing is and ought to uh. be in America and what the role of federal law enforcement ought to mean. And so, you know, so for instance, when we were there, um, Sally Yates under her uh, issued uh, implicit bias training for all federal law enforcement officers, that's a big deal. Just merely getting an attorney general to recognize that we, even black people, hold biases implicitly yep. you know, as they carry out their jobs. And so that's a big one too. And then, um, you know, I, I also think the, and I say this as someone who has prosecuted nonviolent drug offenses. So look, you know, speak out of both sides of my mouth here, but we just need to rethink our relationship to nonviolent offenses, even in the federal code. And um, crack powder sentencing and this in the federal sentencing guide is something that just needs to be addressed. The lengths of sentences need to be addressed in some meaningful way. And we've started some of that. And there's been some movement under that in Donald Trump, I will give his yeah, we'll give his administration that. But it's got to be a given how much the nation has been talking about race and policing and law enforcement over the last three months or four months. This It has to be a big priority for the next AG. This episode is brought to you by Viore. I love sports. I know you do too. I also know that lots of you exercise, but if you're like me and my wife, the, the beloved sports gal, You're sick and tired of ugly, uncomfortable workout gear, especially, you know, I do a lot of walking. I walk around LA, I make calls, I listen to podcasts. Here are two words that will change everything. Viore clothing, a line of activewear that is unbelievable. The best thing about Viore is you can lounge around in it, you can work out in it, you can go outside, you can go shopping down in your local wherever, and you never feel like you're either underdressed or overdressed. You're just comfortable. You can wear it when you're training, traveling, lounging around the house. Go get yourself some of the most comfortable and versatile clothing on the planet. Here's the deal. Our listeners get 20% off their first purchase at viori.com slash Simmons. Once again, V-U-O-R-I dot com slash Simmons. This episode is brought to you by Thomas's. Thomas's presents Technique with Tom. Slicing an English muffin with a butter blade? Boulder Dash. Just pull apart with your hands and marvel in the nooks and crannies splendor. For each one is unique like a snowflake. Thomas's. Huzzah. A toast to breakfast. This episode is brought to you by 7-Eleven. Cold slurpy drinks and a hot summer day are a match made in heaven. And your favorite refreshment 
just got even better. Let's talk about 7-Eleven's $1 small Slurpee drink with seven rewards. It's the classic frozen fizzy treat you can't get anywhere else. I'm a blue raspberry guy. Just know that about me. Know that about me going forward. Anytime there's a drink like this, I'm in on the blue raspberry. If you're feeling thirsty, feeling thirsty right now, how about going to visit a 7-Eleven valid through 1725? 7-Eleven has the right to end this promotion early, plus tax, participating U.S. stores. See app for full terms. All rights reserved. So let's talk about policing because that's something that I wanted to kind of dig a little deeper with you on. As a, as a former federal prosecutor, can you explain to people, and I've spoken about it on this show, but can you explain to people what qualified immunity is? Yeah. And how qualified immunity and the standard for criminally prosecuting police officers for misconduct in federal court together makes it almost impossible to hold officers accountable under federal law. Totally. So, look, you guys, well, let me say a big picture point is that if you're going to have police, right? And I think we are. Like, if you're going to have police, you got to have some system to protect them legally. It's just like any other workplace protection, right? So the example I've used before, I've even said it on air, is if a cop fishes a kid out of a river, right, and then performs CPR on the kid, you don't want that cop being sued for battery or assault or something because he touched somebody that didn't know they were going to touch him, right? Okay. So big picture, that's the thing, right? Now, what qualified immunity is, is it it essentially shields officers from virtually any sort of inquiry whatsoever. And so in order to convict someone, in order to convict a police officer and have them get around qualified immunity, there needs to have been an identical case in the jurisdiction that the police is from, where that cop is from, Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. a cop was sued and lost. Right. So basically, if I come to your house, where are you in South Carolina now? Or I'm um, in Charlotte, North Carolina. Yeah, now. You're in Charlotte. Right. Okay. All right. You're in Charlotte now. If I if I come to you, if I'm a cop and I come to your house and break the door down and beat you up and drag your kids out and whatever. Right. And you sue me for a federal civil rights suit. In order to win, there has to be another identical fact pattern where that had happened in another case. Now, that's ridiculous because, number one police never lose in these suits. And number two, fact patterns are also different every time. Also so different, also different. Also different. So it's just nobody ever wins. And it's it's almost like a red herring, this idea. So yeah, we got to fix the doctrine of qualified immunity. It's just got to be fixed. There's no... And, and, and in the words of, of, of the great Eric Holder, who talks about uh, uh, federally prosecuting officers for civil rights violations, he said the standard is too damn high. It's just too high. It's just too high. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Like the rent, the standard is too damn high, but it's just, (laughs) but again, it's where it came from is someone one day, a hundred years ago. I mean, the Supreme court has created this, but somebody a long time ago said we have to protect the decisions of cops. But now what that has become is we just automatically assume that the police officers are always right. Because as the law says, the decisions they make are on the spot and they're difficult and they're stressful and tense. And I think we can all agree to that, but that doesn't mean they're always right. And there's a big difference between decisions being difficult and decisions always being correct. And I think that's the problem with how the doctrines evolve. So when we look at policing right now and where we are in this country, you have the Trump executive order, which is bullshit. Um, you have the Justice and Policing Act, I believe is what it's called. You have some progressive activists who have the Breathe Act, which goes further than the Justice and Policing Act. And then you have Senate Republicans with the Justice Act. My question to you, Elliot, is what should we look for? What are three or four things that listeners should look for 
in what our police reform looks like. I mean, we don't we're not going to get it until after this election. It all is going to depend on who the president is, of course, most importantly, but second most importantly, what the Senate looks like. So what does I mean, Tim yeah. Scott, you put Tim Scott, Kamala Harris, Cory Booker in the room with some progressive <laughs> activists and some conservative activists. What comes out? What makes it to the president's desk? I think qualified immunity. It's, you know, because the interesting thing about qualified immunity, you're starting to get kind of, you saw this with criminal justice reform and crack powder sentencing too, to some extent. Once the libertarians and the conservatives start getting on board, that's mm-hmm. where you start finding your consensus. And I think qualified immunity, you're just about there. That might be the one thing that, I think everybody can agree on. The other big thing, but I don't know the extent to which this can happen at the federal level, you just got to rethink police departments. And now here's where I- Reimagine them. Reimagine them. This is where I tip my hand a little bit as I'm not in the abolished camp, but you have to think about what police are asked to do. And the same officer who is called to the guy peeing on the street who's drunk and homeless is mm-hmm. the same officer who's called to the domestic dispute, who's the same officer who's called to the armed robbery. Most of these things require a social worker, not a police officer. A mental Yet health we, professional. Yeah. Or a health professional, right? Or mental health professional. But you have someone showing up with a gun, and it's almost like when you have a gun, everything looks like a black man who's committing a crime, right? So uh, it's a... It's so a when, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Yeah, right? It's, it's a twist on that. And so... Now, some of that can happen at the federal level, but that's just a nationwide rethinking of what policing is. Now, the attorney general, this gets back to your question of what the next AG should be. The attorney general can set the tone for the nation and say, this is what we as a nation, you know, bring, can convene people, bring them together, talk to local law enforcement. But that's where state legislatures, that's where a lot of the good work's got to happen now. Well, we've seen the president, and, and I don't know if it's savviness or perversion, almost Willie Horn-esque, but we've seen this, this president weaponize recent spikes in gun crime in some of our cities to justify his nonsense. But talk to me about how you think a Democratic-led DOJ works with our mayors to address recent spikes in gun crime. Well, it's, it's happened before. It's, you know, you bring them together and you find, I know this sounds hokey in 1990s, but you bring them together and you find common ground. I think what, what a Democratic DOJ would recognize is that it's, it's not just about boots on the ground. Now, that's certainly an element of, quote unquote, keeping people safe. But you can, I, I think a, a, a new DOJ would recognize that by investing in early childhood education and bringing the Department of Ed, and by investing in early child care, by investing in schools, by investing in all of these things, you actually end up lowering the violent crime rate five or 10 years from now, just because it's not, you can't just not think about all these problems as interrelated and then see a spike in crime and think, okay, well, now we got to go into the city and shoot everybody because that's the only way to fix things. These, these problems started, they're metastasized. They started developing, you know, basically from birth. And until you can philosophically get your head around that point, you're just going to end up sending police officers into neighborhoods and shooting everybody. And that seems to be the president's approach. So I'm not on the I'm not on the abolish the police bandwagon either. I do understand defund the police and yes. we have these two kind of movements where we're reprioritizing the spending. Democrats in the abolish or excuse me in the defund the police are not saying when you dial 911 nobody's going to show up. Mm-hmm. But what do you make of both of these movements and how does a Biden Harris administration and attorney general whomever that is how do they navigate this space? I again I still think 
the word people are latching onto the word defund as if that means take and it means different things to different people and it's it's you know it's complicated what constitutes divesting versus defunding versus so on but i still think a biden harris administration can get to the point of talking about rethinking what police ought to do and to some extent that is a divest and defund that's the outcome right. of divesting and defunding because if you were taking resources away from police but also limiting their their responsibilities and making it clearer that well, we're not going to be sending police to um, to go to domestic disputes or the guy peeing on the street or whatever. We, we send a mental health professional for that. So I still think the tools in the box for uh, a more progressive president and administration, that there's just more tools there. The issue is, look, you got Biden's record going back to the 1990s. And I think that- Which is- record? Are we talking about Senator Biden's record, which is- um, <laughs> Senator Biden, yeah. Not vice president, yeah. Or or vice president Biden. Which which Biden are we talking about? Because I look them as as two different. uh, It's Old Testament, New Testament. (laughs) Well, right, and but look at Old Testament. uh, You know, we'll look at. um, I I wish I could think of a pun fast enough, but Old Testament (laughs) Kamala and New Testament Kamala are two different biblical figures as well. Like the prosecutor Kamala, and it's a mixed record. Mixed in and it's all nuanced. It's nuanced. It's all nuanced, man. It's like literally. You know, some, is she a cop or is she a progressive reform? What well, kind of both, right? Um, and it's the same thing. Now, as a senator, she has governed to the left unabashedly. So, um, if you were if you were preparing her for a debate, right? This is an interesting question. You bring this up. If you're preparing her for a debate, how does how does uh, Mike Pence attack Kamala Harris? I mean, what is he going to say? You were soft on crime, but you lock people up. I mean, what is the what? Because they have a lot of tension oh. in their messaging over there. How does he attack her? I think he attacks her as a as a puppet of the left. I think he attacks Bernie Sanders through her. He attacks AOC through her. And I think what you say- But you can't say she's soft on crime. Well, but I think you just don't, you don't even address it. You don't even, you stay away from the prosecutor line altogether and say what I Kamala gotcha. Harris, what, or will they call her Kamala because they refuse to- re- Kamala, because they, what, pre- yeah, I mean- Right, we could refuse to learn. Okay, yeah, Bakari, yeah. Um, what they- <laughs> Barakari. <laughs> Barakari, no, but what they- But they what, can pronounce Schwarzenegger, but they can't pronounce- Kamala. It's, it's, uh, it's, if you can pronounce Saxby Chambliss, I think you can pronounce <laughs> Kamala Harris. Let's be clear. So, no, but seriously, I think they um, everything gets back to socialism, the unrest and crime in the streets. And if you elect these people, if you elect Kamala Harris, you will get more Portland. That is their argument. You work for Immigrations and Customs. We were yeah. talking about we were talking about um, Customs Enforcement. We were talking about defund the police, abolish the police, and that movement. Should ICE be abolished? I know it's a baby in terms of agencies, and if so, what replaces it? I mean, I know that yeah. ICE didn't it, it didn't uh, come into creation until two thousand and three, I believe three. three. Yeah, you, yeah, you would know, of course. Uh, so tell me, tell me where you fall in that um, whole uh, yeah. kind of debate. I don't think you will, but this gets, it's a similar abolish versus defund versus divest, right? I don't think you abolish it, but it cannot exist in its current form. Now that's not getting rid of it because what I mean is it's called interior enforcement. There's border enforcement, which is the, you know, uh, regulating who comes in and goes through the border and interior enforcement, sort of enforcing immigration law, but not at the border. If we're going to have immigration laws, you have to have some way of enforcing them. You have to. Right now, the question is, do do they need to be sort of these jackbooted folks who are uh, ripping kids apart from their parents deliberately as a means of deterring their parents from coming to the country? That's what it was under this president. It cannot be that and should not be that. Um, So there's no question about that. But 
you just, I think you have to scrap. I mean, I would make say something bigger, which is that essentially scrapping the idea of the Department of Homeland Security now, which is this massive, massive department that has ICE in the So secrecy. this is breaking news. You, we, we keep ICE, reform ICE, scrap Homeland Security? Well, <laughs> I think you, you, you remake the Department of Homeland Security. Right now, literally, right now, you have ICE, the Secret Service, the Coast Guard, Customs and Border Protection, Citizenship Services, and virtually all these disparate agencies that have nothing to do with each other other than the fact that somebody after 9-11 thought they should all be smushed together. And the 9-11 commission report sort of thought they should be smushed together. What you have now is a mess that this president was allowed to put political cronies in, in, in charge of, and the results have been disastrous. So that's, it's sort of, it's related to the, do you abolish ICE question or not? I think the whole, the whole enterprise around public safety around immigration and quote-unquote homeland security is broken and just not run effectively or efficiently or run well. It sounds like we got a lot of challenges to rebuild this this government that our president uh, currently is is just, you know, destroying and pulling up from its roots. I got just a couple more questions while yeah. I'm here because this, this is so intriguing for me. I, I, I appreciate the depth of this conversation and being able to get my listeners to kind of understand the nuance of, of government and how it works. Yeah. President Carter, one of the things I was able to put in the platform committee of the Democratic Platform Committee about two weeks ago was expanding the judiciary, right? So mm-hmm. President Carter created over 150 new seats. Uh, the federal judiciary hasn't been expanded in a meaningful way since 1990. And our country and the dockets have exploded since then. We all know that. Why aren't Democrats talking more about judges and expanding the judiciary, especially now that Trump has appointed over 200 judges, which are just fundamentally destroying our, trampling on our freedoms. How else do Democrats account for this damage without expanding the judiciary? And why isn't this something more Democrats are talking about? Be still my beating heart, my brother. You have touched on the issue that gets me up in the morning, literally. So here's the thing. Democrats, as a general matter, do not vote as single issue voters on the judiciary. They just don't. Conservatives do. Democrats don't. And let me give you an example. Look at the State of the Unions uh, going back to President Bush, uh, going back to President Clinton, and just look at every State of the Union, which is a reflection of the party of the president. It's the priorities of the president that he's laying out for the American people. Bill Clinton did not mention judges and courts once. Barack Obama, I believe, mentioned courts once, but only in the context of attacking this one Citizens United decision, this, this campaign right. finance spending decision. We didn't talk about courts and didn't talk about appointments. George W. Bush talked about judges five times. He literally said, you know, these activist judges, we don't want judges who are going to legislate from the bench and use all the buzzwords because that's red meat for conservatives. That's it. And it always has been until Democrats start voting on judges and the judiciary as critical. We're just going to be back here. Now, something we said earlier in our conversation, something I said is that Democrats tend to believe that the system will save them and that the system is itself itself inherently good. So they just, well, courts are are just nonpartisan bodies where people come together and judges shed their politics at the door. And I think Republicans, Mitch McConnell learned a long time ago that that's just not the case and that's just not how it's going to be. So it, you know, I think it's it's a much bigger orthodoxy question than it is about actually any one court expansion plan or anything like that. But do Democrats now need to start thinking about expanding? Court? Oh, absolutely, they should start. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. and it's and look, I, for every Republican or even friends of mine who say, "Well, you all started this with Robert Bork back in 1988," which you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy that premise, but. 
the clearest example and the worst example of breaking those norms was Merrick Garland back in 2016, where literally Mitch McConnell, the day Antonin Scalia's body literally was not in the ground. And Mitch McConnell said, issued a statement minutes later saying, we're not going to take up. We're Is not there any up. doubt? Is there any doubt, God forbid, anything happens to RBG or any other member of the court? No doubt. That they, will, no. They, will fill, they will fill that seat in the next 75 days. They will literally find a 14-year-old conservative white man uh, who's thinking about a law degree one day, slap a robe on him and get him in that seat faster than you can say broken norms. Like literally, (laughs) it's going to happen. No question. No question. Because the political blowback is, I mean, it's a question of weighing what's worse, the political blowback or having that seat for the next 50 years when this 14-year-old comes of age and finishes puberty and, and grows up. I think that calculus is just so important to them. No question, not up for debate. My last question to you, President Biden has said he'd uh, appoint a black woman to the Supreme Court. Who's on your shortlist? I know you got one. Oh my God, I love this. I love this. I love these these shortlist questions. Okay, number one, um, you know, so again, I'm a little close to this because I've been working around these people. You know, um, Leandra Kruger, who was a colleague of mine at the, you know, Leandra? Yeah. Uh I just um, tweeted about, she was on my short list that I tweeted about last oh week. Oh my God. We, we, we're, we're right here. We're, we're right, right here. We're right here, right here, right? <laughs> um, people who are just listening and aren't seeing on the Zoom, we're doing the two fingers thing. <laughs> uh, I think Leandra's on the short list. Um, you could, there's probably members of Congress that, you know, I, I wasn't thinking of this today, uh, who have law degrees and, and would be good. Um, you know, I would have said Kamala Harris, but not. I, so I got, I have Ketanji Brown Jackson. Okay. K- uh, Tish, the, Tish James, probably, right? Yeah, Tish no? James, yeah. Uh, she wasn't on my list, but uh, Tish James, okay. Uh, Sherry Beasley, who is okay. the, uh, she's the Chief Justice of the North Carolina State Supreme Court. Uh-huh. Uh, Danielle Holly Walker. Oh my God, the, Dean of Howard Law. Dean of Howard Law. I mean, Howard's just killing the game right now, so yeah. uh, why not? Sherilyn Eiffel. Yes. Um, Michelle Childs, who is a district yep. court judge who happens to have a great relationship with Jim Clyburn and many others as well. I got, so. I got, I got one more. Um, Leah Epperson, who's a, a law professor at American, uh, with a just a, an amazing background and resume as a civil rights. Oh, lawyer. and Stacey Abrams' sister, district court judge in Georgia. I think she's going to, you know, be a fascinating, uh, okay. fascinating watch as well. Yeah, no question, no question. But. Uh, Again, like I, you know, ever since day one, like the, when people ask that question, I always say Leandra first, um, just cause I worked with her. I know her. I just, uh, and you know, it's almost like when you know somebody and their skills and their personality and their heart, you know, you can sort of see them in a role and would just be, would be phenomenal at that, at that job. So where can people find you? What do they need to do to follow you? I hope people learn something from today's episode. Where can people find you and, and, and follow you on social media and some of yeah, the things the- you're doing in media and podcasting and everything else? Yeah, so Made to Fail podcast, you just subscribe, rate, and listen to that. And then, of course, you know you can harangue me on Twitter at <laughs> Elliot C. Williams. Uh, uh, you see, the problem was you, you got a name like Bakari Sellers. You can get at Bakari Sellers I because can't. your name's Bakari, brother. Like mine, because Williams is the third most common name in America. I was going to say there are a lot of Williams out there, I'm sure. Oh, man, I had to struggle with it. And I still don't even like it at Elliot C. Williams. Too many letters, too many, and just... But it is what it is. And now I got my pretty blue check. So if you try to change it, they take it away. You're verified now. My, my yeah, daughter's no. like, oh, my God, my 15-year-old is like, that's the coolest thing I've ever done. That's it. Just be verified on Instagram. Oh, she's verified or you? Oh, you're verified. I am. I am. So that's why she gives me a little uh, 
I love it. A little bit of respect. But thank I you for coming it. on, man. We, we'll Thanks. have you on again. Yeah, this no, was amazing. Great. And, we'll, and we'll, we'll talk about some more of the things that are going on. Thank you so much for coming on the Bakari Sellers Podcast. This is my very good friend, Elliot Williams. I wish we were in Milwaukee together, but we're here. Uh, Keep doing great things, brother. Meet you at the top. I see you. Thanks. Okay.